0: So a number of years ago, uh, my son and I took a trip just south of the border for a big family reunion. And uh, the family reunions on uh, that side of the family are always big, like very, very big. Uh, it's always food, it's always music, it's always dancing, it's a bunch of kids running around, it's, it's good. Um, so just to put it in perspective when I say big, uh, my grandfather is the youngest of twenty five same mom, same dad, and a whole bunch of kids, a whole bunch of kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had kids, and so on and so on, so you get the idea when we get together it's it's a party and and when we do have this time together it's 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 a lot of fun uh, and there were some lessons this Particular trip, there were a couple of lessons that that not only I learned but my son learned as well. Uh, the first lesson was that it's never a good idea to eat three hot dogs in under ten minutes and then go into the bouncy castle. <laughs> <laughs> lesson number one, we learned that the hard way for sure. And the second, the second lesson or the second insight that I got is a little bit, a little bit nuanced, and that. When you get this many people together, we were, I can remember this time in particular, we were sitting under a big pavilion and you'll see how these little groups start to move off into their own little sections. And you realize that this group doesn't necessarily wanna talk to that group. And this group over here is not really interested in talking to those folks because there's something that happened however many years ago that they're still not really in in a good position or they're not ready to talk to each other yet. I'm the only family that has that experience. Maybe you don't need a big crowd of people for that tension to be there, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm the only one, no? yeah. Okay, so you'll see these interesting little factions happen in the family and they're not, people aren't really together. But something really, really, really amazing happened in this time and I noticed it. So there's a handful of people that are still part of that older generation, my grandfather's generation, he's the baby of the family. Uh, he's like in his mid nineties now. But Uncle Joe was there at this time and uh, at, at at this particular barbecue is about 103 years old, 102, 103 years old, not quite sure. There's a debate on how old he actually is, what his real birthday is, but 103 years old. And his voice is so soft because he he doesn't have a lot of strength, but then he starts to speak. And the moment he started to speak, you see everybody start quieting down. And in that moment, you see everyone's attention, whatever drama was had, just for that moment, at least, while Uncle Joe started to speak, everybody was locked into what he had to say. There was a reminder from everybody in the family that uncle Joe is in part why we're all here, why we're all coming together. And it was that centering moment in that time that said, no, 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 we're here for a purpose and we're connected. We're actually family. And he was reminded of that. There's something uh, very beautiful and powerful about the weight and the, the voice of those that have gone before. And I I think for us, particularly those that say that we follow in Jesus' way, we can sometimes lose sight of that voice, that weightiness of Jesus who says, no, no, no. There's a reason, there's a purpose. We're all actually moving in the same direction. So we're in our third week of our series, Churchianity. And uh, this is the question, how to be a more Christ-like Christian in our world. That's the question that we're uh, asking. Uh, In the first week, Jimmy took us through and answered the question, what does Jesus save us from? And I would encourage you to go back if you missed it to to not only watch that teaching or listen to that teaching, but go back to the uh, accompanying uh, podcast, talking about hell and Hades and all of that good fun stuff. Uh, The next week it was, uh, does Jesus want, me to st- just go to church on Sunday and check that one out. This week, we're gonna be talking about, does Jesus want me to hate certain people? And next week about, does Jesus live in a place in my heart? And it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a sociologist or an anthropologist to look around and realize that our world is very, very divided. And you can pick your, your direction on how you wanna be divided if it's race or gender or socioeconomic status, neighborhood, faith, education, the language that you speak, what culture you're from, there are a million ways that we can show how different we are, how divided we are. And it's so ingrained in the way that we do things, the way that we compare ourselves to one another. Everything seems to be a competition. Everything seems to be a conflict or it's less about um, what I stand for or what I'm about as a and more along the lines of like what I'm against or what I'm not for. It's been three years since uh, COVID, the time that we're having this conversation, three years, which doesn't make sense to me. But I can remember thinking early on in the, in the pandemic that here was something that was actually going to galvanize all of the people. The whole planet is actually facing this single threat and, and I think for once with all of the polarization that's happening in our world, I think this is actually going to be something that brings people together, that we could fight this common, uh, common enemy. Yeah, it didn't quite <laughs> work out that way. I know there are some people whose, whose family gatherings are still recovering from all of the conflict and the different way of looking at things from that, um, that time in our, in our history. But why do we divide? Why are we so uh, at each other's throats all of the time? Why are we trying to, to make divisions and see that there's, um, there's so much lack of unity? And I think mostly is out of a desire to be safe, for us to be secure. It's so uh, comforting to know that you're with people who look like you, sound like you, think like you, believe the same things that you do. And that somehow we believe that if we're just with each other, with, with like-minded people, that we'll be safe in some way. But I'm interested, it's interesting to learn when you look at the fruits of the spirit, when you look at the values of being a Jesus follower, that safety doesn't make one of those, any of those lists of what the call is to be a Jesus person. Security is not in the guarantees of what you will find as you venture in to follow Jesus. So this is interesting if you've heard the phrase xenophobia. Xenophobia is this idea and I think commonly we hear it and we think it and, and associate it with uh, uh, anti-muslim but it's actually it's it's fear of the other or fear of the unknown, fear of the stranger, which is which is what we're so consumed with if I don't know you, if I don't if I don't understand your ways, if you're different from me, then somehow I'm afraid And Jesus' people, Jesus' followers, were were not exempt from this uh, division, from this polarization or these conflicts. But what's interesting, we don't see uh, xenophobia in scripture, but we see another phrase that's filio xenos, which is love for the stranger, filio to love and xenos, the unknown is to love the unknown. It's actually a call for Jesus' people to not be afraid of the unknown, but the opposite, to not push them away, but to actually draw them in closer, to have deep love and care for the stranger. When we talk about Jesus' prayer for his people, we see that in John chapter 17, where Jesus', is, Jesus prayer for his, his church was that there would be unity that the church would be one, or Jesus, the people who claim to follow him would be one in the same way that him and the father are one. I think as difficult as, as he was aware of the outside challenges and persecution that would happen to the church, Jesus knew that inside would be just as challenging, that we would have issue with one another. And Lament has this uh, this, poignant quote, she says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So the rest of our time here now, uh, we're going to look at one of the most familiar parables, maybe in, the, in all of the scripture. Uh, we wanna look at these familiar stories. Even with this whole series, we've been looking at these very familiar stories of Jesus and going in a little bit deeper and getting more insight, so if you have your Bibles with you, whether digitally or old school in the uh, the letter in print, then i'd love you for you to turn to uh, Luke chapter ten verse twenty five starting in verse twenty five the story of the Good Samaritan, and when we think of this word the good Samaritan it 's interesting because uh, the the descriptor for the 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 word or the the, um, the person of a Samaritan is associated with somebody who's good. When you think, oh, that person is such a they're such a good Samaritan. They're a great. They went out of their way to do a good thing. Like there's even uh, specific laws here in Ontario, the Good Samaritan Law, that says that if somebody is in trouble, that you won't and you and you move in to try and help them deliberately that if something bad goes on, you won't be persecuted. You won't be held liable because they want to promote people actually moving into hard situations to help them. There's a, there's a law there that's, that's called the Good Samaritan Law that's based on this, uh, this parable. So if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, we'll read, we'll read the story. It's a short story, but we'll read it together now. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the lawyer, the lawyer asks a question. It's a, it's a very real and I think, I think an honest question, even though he's, he's trying to trap and he's trying to trick Jesus, which is what the, the lawyers of the day were trying to do often, set him up. So he stands up and he asks a question. I don't think the question is necessarily about how do I get into heaven and live forever and ever. This wasn't the, 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 the thought process of the Jewish mind at the time, but, but the question really would be more along the lines of how do I live a, a fulfilled life, a good life, a better life, a life that is filled with Shalom with, with total and surrounding peace. Regardless of the motives, of the question. It's one that most people I think ask themselves. I know I've asked myself the question is, what is it that I have to do to be saved or successful? A life that is uh, full of abundance. We ask ourselves these questions on a regular basis. I I think a lot of us do. And I want us to keep this question in mind as we walk through that. This is, this is a response or an answer to the question. How do I have, how, what do I have to do to have a life that's fulfilled? The lawyer is looking to get some parameters, some assurances, either to make himself look good or to get the right formula to figure out the answer to succeeding at life. And it reminds me of uh, my, my favorite lawyer story. Now the person who told me this story said it was a true story, but I have no way of verifying whether or not that he's telling the truth or not. So bear with me. But the, but the, the story goes as this, there was a lawyer who uh, purchased a box of uh, cigars, 24 cigars in the box and had the bright idea to go, get that box of cigars insured against fire, theft, and vandalism. And the insurance company actually wrote the policy, like that allowed him to do it. So he gets, the, he gets these box of cigars uh, insured. And then after about a month or two months, slowly but surely, he, end, he smokes every single one of these cigars, every one of them. And after he's finished, he submits a claim to his insurance company and says, my cigars have suffered uh, fire. I need to be reimbursed. So the insurance company, obviously they say, no, we're not gonna do that. There's, the cigars went up in the way that they're actually intended to be consumed. There's no way you do it. So he sued the company and won. The uh, insurance company writes him a check for $15,000. And the moment that he cashed the check, the same day, the insurance company goes and has this gentleman arrested for 24 counts of arson, (laughs) small fire. He ended up getting fined and spending time in prison. So this, this, it's a silly story about uh, a fire insurance policy, but th- this, this lawyer that's mentioned in Luke, may be looking for a way to trap Jesus, this kind of uh, question that gives him uh, a kind of insurance policy. Tell me the things that I need to do in order that I can benefit or cut corners or, 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 or have this uh, way of thinking benefit me. And I don't think the question is a bad question. It's, it's one that's on the minds of a lot of us. What do I need to do to get fill in the blank? What's the catch? What's the path of least resistance in order to get the greatest return? And if we're not careful, we can import this way of thinking into every aspect of our own personal lives. But at its core, this question, there's something wrong with it from the, from the lawyer. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life, abundant life. And typically the, the, the way to get anything or to inherit anything is to have the right last name, right? You need to be born into a family. So there's nothing you really need to do except exist. Your, your inheritance is secure depending on the family that you're in. So at its core, there's, there's something wrong with this, this question. And Jesus picks up on this lawyer's leading question quickly. And he asks the question back to him. I love the way Jesus does this always. Any question he gets, he has an, up, uh, an amazing way of getting to the thing behind the thing, always. He says, you know the law, you know the scriptures. What do they say? What do the scriptures say? And the lawyer has a very good response. It was an answer that would have been widely ex- uh, accepted uh, in the Jewish tradition. Even Jesus, when he was confronted a couple times before, when people asked uh, their lawyers again, they're trying to trick him. Uh, What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the answer that this lawyer gives. He says, well, exactly that, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms it. says, yes, that's right, very good but the, the lawyer was ready. I think he, he knew that was coming. So he has the follow-up question. It says, who is my neighbor? This is a throwback to the laws in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The law says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. But now here's the lawyer's mind coming back into the equation. This. Uh, what's the angle? How do, I, how, do I, how do I set the bright parameters for this? This would have been a, a, a highly debated topic in the Jewish tradition. The questions would continue, well, who is my neighbor? Does it have to be somebody I know? Can my neighbor be somebody that I don't know? Can my neighbor be a stranger or an alien? Uh, can they, or do they need to be a, a convert to, to the faith, to Judaism? so many questions specifically about the definition of what it is to be a neighbor. And I think we do this as well, a lot, that we'll spend so much time talking about the definition or the, the, the right ramifications or, or the classification of this word. And sometimes we'll do a thing so much that it exempts us or we think it does from actually doing anything. We can talk about a thing so much that nothing actually ends up getting done. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus uh, answers this question with a story, which is another thing that he does that I love all the time. So this would have been on a familiar road that was known to be a place where robbers and bandits would wait in the the bush to uh, wait to ambush an unsuspecting traveler. And this is exactly what happens on the road from Jerusalem. A man gets ambushed, beaten, stripped, robbed and left half dead. And Jesus doesn't give any details about this man, except that he is a human being. We don't have an idea of where he's from, his age, the language he speaks, his position, his social standing in the society, only that he is a man, he is half dead, he is in need. And in this part of the world, at this time, there would have been two main distinguishers that you would be able to tell who a person is, if they're friend or foe if they're part of your tribe or they're somebody else and that would be from the clothes that they would wear from the from the way that they would speak the language or the 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 accent that they would have in their speech how they're dressed and how they speak and here's a man with no clothes and no ability to speak the labels are off only that this man is in need and then enter the Levite and the priest. And we'll try and suspend our um, cynicism. Uh, often when we read the uh, Pharisee or or priest or Levite, we have this thing, well, they're the bad guys of the story, but but spend that belief for just a moment as those that were hearing this story for the first time, these are actually the good guys. These are the people who were upholding the law, who were upholding um, uh, spiritual foundations and keeping, Uh, order and good things and being a representation of God's people on earth. They're the good guys coming. So hearing the story, in some ways, it's kind of feels like it might be a good news story. It actually sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? Where you have like the Levite and the priest and they walk into a like wherever, (laughs) but, but, but there's this, there's this, uh, this invitation of these, these two men and neither of them stopped to help this man. And, and we can, Guess at what the reason is for why they don't. It could be a, a, a loss of purity that they were likely coming from the temple and to, to touch somebody who may or may not be, have been dead would uh, make them c- ceremonially unclean. Maybe that's the case, we're not quite sure. Maybe it was a risk that uh, they didn't stop because of a risk of them being hurt. That uh, sometimes uh, you know, they'll see somebody, somebody will be on the, uh, on the road and it's almost like a decoy, it's a, it's a bait, it's a trap. Where they'll just wait to see if somebody will like, if they stop, then the rest of us will jump out of the bushes and we'll <coughs> I'll get this guy too. Or maybe it was a risk of being taken advantage of. Like if I stop here, how much is this going to cost me overall? Or it, it just just could be an inconvenience, a personal inconvenience that I don't want to do this thing because I've got more important places to be. I I cannot count how many times I've been in my car on my way to some spiritual or religious duty and past flashing hazard lights on the side of the road. I can't count, it's been too many. These guys say no, they keep walking. And then the third person enters into the story, which is so jarring, so uh, offensive for him to say what he says. In comes the Samaritan. And we add the good Samaritan to the thing, but understand that that's like an oxymoron. Those two words in that context would not belong together. For us in our Western culture, we think it's a good thing. Like I said earlier, it's like, you're a good Samaritan. It's a compliment. But in this time to say the name of a Samaritan, a better descriptor would be uh, wicked or filthy or impure or uh, despised. Uh, These were the people that were not accepted. They were not respected. They were completely rejected from from all things in that time. And Jesus' intention is to be shocking. This is like uh, telling the story uh, to a group of of Russians that are there and they're sitting listening to a story and then there's uh, a highly respected official and the second one, and then all of a sudden someone from the Ukraine walks in not as the villain, but as the hero. Or, or people from Israel that are sitting and then a respected person comes, a second respected person comes and then someone from Palestine comes, not as the villain, but as the person who's the hero. This would have been very jarring, very offensive. Imagine, imagine speaking to a room full of people who are, are liberal and at their greatest need. And then somebody with a red, uh, a red hat that says, Mag on it, or or a Confederate flag. This is the, the hero of the story, or or a, or a deeply conservative, staunch, uh, right wing uh, individual or a group of group of right wing people are there, and the hero of the story has has purple hair and a rainbow flag, walking in to save the day. This is like so. Imagine now. The the jarring that this is the example that Jesus is bringing to the group that he's speaking to in order to catch their attention. The one that you thought is the villain is actually about to become the hero. So I want us to take a moment and think about that. Just us in this room and those of you that are are watching online and our sites, think about that just in this moment. When you think of those key identifiers that you have, those first things that come to mind when you think of who am I Is it your gender? Is it your socioeconomic status? Is it your postal code or your zip code? All of those things that define you, think about that. And then think about who the other could be. And think of you being in your most desperate time of need and that other coming in your direction. So maybe you're thinking, oh, they're gonna finish the job. (laughs) or kick me while I'm down. Maybe it's not a, uh, an entire people group. Maybe, maybe it's a person with a name and a face. Maybe it's somebody that you've considered an enemy. They walk in the space. This wicked, filthy, impure, despised Samaritan comes and stops and draws near to the person in need. And what? What does he do? My translation in uh, verse 33, he says, but a Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Other translations say that he had compassion on him or he he felt bad for him, but uh, pity, to pity him sounds like such a it doesn't sound like a right word for me. It just seems like oh like oh sorry you're sorry about your day, bud. Like just like real patronizing, almost. He took pity on him, almost like uh, charity in a in a in a patronizing sense. But the the Greek word I think has something for us to really sit with and to to chew on, and that's my uh, I might be saying this wrong but this word is, is literally translated uh, a yearning in the guts, deep, deep yearning in your, in your bowels, in the pit of who you are and being compelled to help and move to action. A compassionate pull that moves you to action to be moved so deeply by something that you feel it in the pit of your very being in your stomach. This is what this word means. And we read this phrase over and over again in the New Testament. It's also translated as compassion, but, but we hear it. We see it, uh, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were har- harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When he saw her, he had compassion on her and told her, do not weep. It's the same he in every one of these interactions that we read throughout the entire New Testament. It's always 100% Jesus, there's nobody else with three exceptions and all of them are parables. The unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, the servant that owes his master a ridiculous amount of money that couldn't be paid off in multiple lifetimes. The master has compassion on him and forgiveness and forgives the debt. The father in the story of the prodigal son of Luke chapter 15, as the father who's waiting and watching for his son to come home, sees him a long way off and puts all dignity aside and runs towards him, compassion, and rescues his son. And here, the wicked, filthy, impure, despised Samaritan sees the man in need and filled with compassion, stoops down to give aid to the weary, beaten and stripped traveler. The one with Spagnizalni in the New Testament is always the God figure always the hero of the story, the one that we should aspire to be like, the answer to the question on how to live a life that is fulfilled and in abundance. And here Jesus is saying very clear, when you ask the question, who is my neighbor? We're not asking the right question. The question isn't about who is my neighbor Uh, What are the lines that I can draw to say who's in and who's out? How far do I have to go in my loving people or caring for people before I don't have to go any further just to be able to get in? The question is flipped from who is my neighbor to who am I being a neighbor to? It's a very different way of of looking at it. um, The house that we used to live, um, a number of years ago, it was a uh, semi-detached. And on the other side of the wall was a, a, a very, uh, an elderly couple from uh, Czechoslovakia and a lovely couple. And um, he was very, very old. And when the snow came down really, really heavy um, me, and then a neighbor from across the street, a guy named Mark from Jamaica would come over and we would, we would both take turns and we would shovel the driveway. And on this one particular day, it was like snowing a lot. And we were both out there at the same time, just having time to talk. and. And at the end of it, we were just kind of catching our breath and showing some appreciation just for what we did, right? It was like, we kind of feel good. Now he would always try and repay us in the fall with like, uh, he had an amazing garden and all the fruits and all the vegetables that he would grow in, in, the, in the fall, he would now give those to us as a blessing, kind of as a thank you. But we were there afterwards and we're just having this conversation, him and I, and it's just like, wow, you know, this is kind of nice that we can do this for, for our neighbor. And, and Mark said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, Quincy, You can have the biggest house. You can have, uh, you know, however many cars in your garage. You can live in the best neighborhood. You can live in the projects. You can have a a, a place with no garage. At that time I had no garage. He says, you can have no garage. I think he was speaking to me. So you can have no garage. You can have all of these, you can, you can have a big house, small house. It doesn't matter. If you don't have neighbors, you're living in the hood. (laughs) I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that because so many times in my life, I've, I've lived my life like the priest or the Levite, where I want to talk about a thing more than I actually want to get involved and do a thing. That I'm more concerned with doing religious work than meeting the needs of the people who are right around me. More concerned with having a right answer to a question or fighting about definitions to the point where nothing actually gets done. Where the feeling of compassion in my guts, as it rises up, gets shoved down and ignored, put aside out of fear of inconvenience or loss or becoming impure. What if Jesus is calling us to something more? It's not just about being a nicer person. It's about a God that has compassion and has moved close to suffering. It's about a God that has compassion and has moved towards suffering, regardless of the label that is on the individual. Knowing that each person, each human being is the image stamp and holds the image of a beautiful and gracious and kind God. And that we can see the hand of God in places and spaces that we would not expect. I pray that we would discover the answer to a fulfilled life. An abundant life is somehow wrapped up in the places where we have made no space. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Lord grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forevermore. Amen.